homage to Jimmy Carter, the 98-year-old who has overcome a myriad of health obstacles over the last decade, has decided to spend his remaining time at home and receive hospice care. Tonight, we learn all about the people's president with renowned presidential historian, Rick Shankman, as Metro Focus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Schoen Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, and the estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. He only served one term, but President James Earl Carter, known to the nation as Jimmy Carter, created a lasting impact that transcended divided American politics. The 39th president served from 1977 to 1981 when the nation was in the throes of an energy crisis, a recession, and rising inflation. He also sought to negotiate global conflicts between Egypt and Palestine, returning the Panama Canal to Panama, a nuclear arms treaty with Russia, as well as a hostage crisis in Iran. And while he lost the 1980 election to his successor, Ronald Reagan, his enduring legacy came through his work with Habitat for Humanity, the nonprofit organization that builds homes and provides access to clean water for low-income people. Carter and his wife, Rosalind, have been avid supporters and construction volunteers for decades, and their first project was here in New York City. So joining me now to talk about former President Jimmy Carter and his legacy is Rick Shankman. Rick is a historian, investigative reporter, and author of Political Animals, How Our Stone Age Brain Gets in the Way of Smart Politics. Welcome back to Metro Focus, Rick. Glad to be here. So for those of us perhaps who are my age and were infants during the Carter administration or weren't even born yet, and for people who might have forgotten because politics moves at such warp speed now, can you take us back to the mid-70s, um, that sort of 76 campaign and the 77 excuse me, um, inauguration when Carter first came to power? What was American politics like? Well, it was very, very different from our politics today. You know, today we're highly polarized. You've got Republicans and Democrats not even wanting to have their children marry each other. That's how polarized we are. Back in the 1970s, Richard Nixon tried to polarize the country. That was his gambit for gaining power and keeping power. But it all collapsed with Watergate. And by the time he left in 1974, his approval rating was down to 23%. So compare that with Donald Trump's um, poll rating right now. He's, he's in the high 30s, maybe mid 40s. Um, it's a very different country today than it was back then. People were just craving a good president, an honest man in office. They wanted a transparent government. After Watergate, people had grown very, very cynical, and they turned towards Jimmy Carter, this peanut farmer who came from out of nowhere, and said, oh, this guy has a nice smile. He seems honest. We're going to put him in the White House. 
which it's like a freak accident of American history. Never in our history, with one exception, Grover Cleveland in the end of the 19th century, did we have a president with as little political experience, as few offices under his belt as Jimmy Carter. He was a one-term governor of Georgia, relatively small state, and suddenly he's the president of the United States, the most powerful man on the planet. Wow. Wow, indeed. But given all of that, then, uh, what were those first 100 days like? Because, of course, everything that we always hear now is that that sets the tone for the entire presidency. What was it that Carter tried to or did accomplish in those first 100 days? Well, and that is the problem. You know, it's uh, ever since uh, FDR and the New Deal, where he had a brilliant 100 days, he passed legislation every two or three days. It was monumental. That really changed the economy, a changed American society. Jimmy Carter tried. He proposed an energy bill that was really going to revolutionize the American economy. And he said, I'm going to get this done in three months because he had in back of his mind this 100-day marker. He never should have made that ridiculous promise because this was highly complicated legislation. And in fact, it took him two years to finally get it through Congress. He really got nothing done. He sent over to the Congress a bunch of pieces, everything got buried except for they gave him one thing. They said, you want to reorganize the executive branch uh, to suit your, your needs? You can go ahead. You can do that. We'll help you with that. That's fine. But on all the big items, they said, no, 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 no. It took him two years, and the resulting energy legislation um, was very far different from what it was when he proposed it. The U.S. Senate just stopped it after it would pass the House and said, whoa, we don't really like this at all. And they made a million changes in it. It turned out to be highly significant. And this is the paradox of Jimmy Carter. If you go through at the end of his four years, his list of accomplishments, they're enormous. He had a very consequential presidency. And we can start taking off just this energy legislation. Think about this. When you go to buy a new car, or you go to a used car, there's a sticker on the car window which tells you how many miles per gallon. That's because of Jimmy Carter. We had had this energy crisis where the Saudis were increasing dramatically the price of oil. That led us to be a country, instead of being oil independent, we now were slaves to the Saudis and the other oil um, uh, countries in the world. And we had to conserve, we had to save money. Well, Jimmy Carter put in place this requirement that said to Detroit, hey, we want to have the legislation that's going to get Americans to slow down in their driving. So they lowered the, the uh, miles um, that you could, the speed limit, you could mm -hmm. go only 55. And they said, we're going to have this miles per gallon. And it, it really tremendously changed the automobile industry. I can go on, but let's go for your question. <laughs> well, <laughs> That's the thing with having a historian on, you know, once you start. Once the, I poke the, the bear, there's no oh, sound. Yeah, it's like a blood. It's a, it's a Hoover Dam that's released. <laughs> with, no, but with everything that you just said, I mean, you laid out um, the energy plan, which I think now, considering how energy conscious a lot of Americans are, that's really interesting to know. But you were saying that there were also so many other successes. And so then my question to you is, why does at least 
pop culture history look back on his presidency as a failure? Yeah, exactly. So let me just tick off really quickly some of these successes, okay? So we had a, a treaty with the Soviet Union, the USSR, uh, SALT II, regulate nuclear arms. He had a treaty to give Panama Canal to the Panamanians, which saved us from probably a guerrilla war down in Central America, uh, which would have been just a colossal mistake. Um, three, and most importantly, he got a Middle East peace agreement, a treaty between Egypt and Israel, ending the war of 30 years. Well, that's just um, the beginning of his accomplishments. Any president who had all those accomplishments, you wonder, well, why the heck isn't he remembered as one of our great presidents? Here's the reason. One, inflation was out of control. It was 14% at one point. 14%. Oh, my gosh. Exactly. Yes. It's yeah, shocking. that's terrible. That's terrible. And then unemployment was 8.7% at one point. You combine those numbers and you have a misery index of over 20%. And the American people were just ricocheting back and forth. We're in a recession. We've got inflation. That, those two things are supposed to be mutually exclusive. And now we had both of them. So it seemed like the president could not gain control over the economy. And the economy is almost always the number one issue for the American voter when they go into the ballot box. So there's that. But beyond that, he had a structural problem, a political problem. He's the last Democrat to win the South. For 100 years, the Democratic Party had a lock on the Southern vote in national elections. And that was their base. Like we talk about Donald Trump having his base, the Democratic Party had the South as their base. But in 1965, Lyndon Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act, which gave black people the right to vote. Well, all of a sudden, white people in the South who had always identified as Democrats, Lyndon Johnson was a Democrat, they said, wow, the Democratic Party doesn't seem to be my party now, it's the black people's party. And they very quickly began leaving the Democratic Party and becoming Republicans. Mm -hmm. This finally hit with Jimmy Carter. I mean, one of the reasons he was selected as the Democratic nominee was because he was from the South. And the Democratic Party knew they had a problem with the South. And they thought, OK, if we put a Southerner uh, up on the ticket, that's going to help us win because we're going to be able to keep our base as well as have the Northeast and some other states in the Midwest. Well, um, that worked to get Jimmy Carter elected. But once he had all these other problems of inflation and recession, um, he lost the Southern uh, white vote, even though he was uh, from the South, he was an evangelical Christian, uh, he was the most religious president of maybe in our history, certainly of the 20th century, and yet he lost the support of those white Southerners. So going into the 1980 election, to finally answer your question, mm -hmm. going into that election, he had a Democratic Party that was breaking at the seams, couldn't count on the South anymore. Um, the left-wingers who had had high hopes for this presidency was the first presidency uh, by a Democrat since Lyndon Johnson. Um, so they had high hopes that they were going to have all kinds of uh, legislation come out of this Congress. They wanted 
uh, national health insurance. They wanted a raise in the minimum wage. Well, he didn't deliver on any of their big promises. So he had a problem with the left wing. He had a problem with white Southerners. He has inflation and a recession. It is a miracle that he did as well in the election of 1980. Um, in terms of the Electoral College, Ronald Reagan wins in practically a landslide. But mm -hmm. in terms of the popular vote, it was very, very close. So then given everything that you're talking about, still, when I was researching on the Carter administration, especially the end of it in that election in 1980, uh, it seemed as if the Iran hostage issue was at the top of a lot of people's minds and that that's what did him in. How do you see that? Yeah, well, you see, I didn't even mention that. And I, of course, should have mentioned it. Uh, it was just like I had such a long list of other things about that. OK, so this is. For people who don't remember this, this was for 444 days. Um, we had 52 hostages um, in our embassy. It was our embassy staff and the ambassador who were held hostage by Iran after the Iranians uh, kicked out the Shah and installed Khomeini as the head of the uh, Iranian regime. I won't even call it a government at that point. It was a regime. Well. This was a disaster. At the beginning, the American people, as they always do in a crisis, rallied around their president. And his poll numbers shot way through the roof. But as it dragged on and on, and then he staged an attempt, a harebrained attempt, in my opinion, to try to rescue these hostages. And it just blew up in his face. Uh, eight people died in the aborted uh, rescue attempt. Uh, a bunch of helicopters and aircraft were lost. And basically, the United States, the world's leading superpower, found that it couldn't even protect its 52 hostages. So this thing dragged on and on and on, and he never did get them out. Finally, one minute after Ronald Reagan became president, the Iranians decided to release the hostages. So that was a big deal, and that looms large in the cultural landscape. But the reason I was emphasizing all the politics mm -hmm. a moment ago is because really that's the backdrop for why his presidency is regarded as a failure, because he couldn't keep his own party together. If you can't keep your own party together, well, then the other party is going to just throw knives at you and you can't defend yourself. I mean, how did Donald Trump with all of his problems for year after year, he had enormous problems, two impeachments, and yet the Republican Party largely remained united behind him. That's why the election uh, a couple of years ago wasn't just a complete blowout. It should have been a blowout given his record, but it wasn't because he had his party behind him. That's what's really key in po politics, American politics. Well, then, given all of that, why? I mean, it, I guess, yeah, how did it become that? When a lot of people think of Jimmy Carter, former President Carter, they think of his work after he was president. His legacy seems to be more about the decades after he left office. And of yeah, course, I, like I mentioned, his work with Habitat for Humanity and it, his uh, bolstering of human rights around the world. Exactly. Well, these are huge legacies. And, you know, I used to always joke, I'd be asked on TV about Jimmy Carter. He said, you know, if Carter could have just gone from being the elected president on day one and immediately gone into his post-presidency, he would have been regarded as one of the, the great figures in American history. The problem was, of course, he had those problematic four years. Even though he had a consequential presidency, there were too many negatives there for him to go down as a great president. 
Plus, great presidents always get reelected. And so that was failing reelection. That was going to be a huge ding on his reputation. But what happens in his post-presidency? Well, suddenly, the man the American people remembered electing back in 1976, this good, Christian, honest, uh, down-to-earth populist, well, he resurfaces. One of the first things he does is he joins a little-known, obscure Christian charity from Amicus Americus, uh, Georgia, just down the road from uh, Plains, Georgia, where he grew up. And they're building homes for humanity. They're building homes for people who are really in need of a home. And they would turn these homes over to these people for free, um, no charge. Well, Jimmy Carter decides, you know, I really like this group. And he starts joining them for a weekend every month. And he starts building these homes. He's out there in his overalls and he's hammering. And Rosalind, his wife, is out there as well. She's working with the plumbing. And soon, Habitat for Humanity goes from being this tiny little charity in an obscure corner of Georgia to having a presence in some 70 countries. Jimmy Carter made that happen. And that's just one of his accomplishments as a post-president. He also, uh, as you say, made human rights a huge issue. This had been a big issue for him uh, when he was president. And when he established his library and the Carter Center, he had it devoted to conflict resolution. And when there were elections around the world, particularly in third world countries, where often the elections were not honest, shall we say, Carter would send a team in, they would monitor the ballot boxes, they would help assure the voters that it was an honest election. And if it wasn't honest, the Carter Center would come out with a report saying what was wrong with it. Well, that's a huge accomplishment that he was able to help other people um, have free elections. And of course, doesn't that appeal to us as Americans? So we did absolutely. Um, Rick, I'm so sorry to cut you off, but we've run out of time. But <laughs> I think that's such an excellent and positive note to leave our conversation on. But we look forward to having you back to give us more insight and context. I think context is key here in understanding our American presidents. Thank you. It is absolutely. Thank you. Okay. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran where our embassy has been seized and more than 60 American citizens continue to be held as hostages. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Read my lips. Defining moments in the presidencies of Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, and George H.W. Bush. This week, the American Experience special series, The Presidents, continues its exploration of the American presidency with a look at the trials and tribulations that these three American leaders faced while in office. And joining me once again to give us his insights on this recent presidential history is Tim Naftali. Professor Naftali teaches history and public service at NYU, is a biographer, George H.W. Bush, and is the former director of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum. Tim, welcome back. Thank you, Ralph. So, Tim, let's get right to it. Jimmy Carter. 
according to conventional wisdom, he was at best a mediocre president who became a great post-president. Is conventional wisdom right? Uh, I think that Jimmy Carter, if you asked him, would, would agree that his pres the presidency was not his greatest moment. Uh, I don't think that uh, historians have changed their, their view. What, they, what historians have found is that Jimmy Carter was president at a very, very tough time in world history and economic history, and that the tools that many presidents have brought to the office and Jimmy Carter brought to the office were insufficient for dealing with these new challenges. So I think historians would be a little bit softer on him, but no one describes What were the crises that he had to deal well, with? Well, he, he had to deal with high inflation. He had to deal with the fact that you had the beginnings of Islamic fundamentalism and that you had a, an anti-Western, anti-Soviet revolution in Iran um, the consequences of which we are still dealing with today. Well, you know, you have said to us, you said it last week and you told me personally, that who is in the White House matters. So you're not saying that the crises that Carter faced, nobody could have handled better than he. Well, you know, people forget that Jimmy Carter ordered uh, the hostage rescue attempt. Um, he uh, put his uh, career and his presidency on the line to rescue the hostages. It failed. But uh, there's no evidence that Jimmy Carter said, by the way, don't, don't add an extra helicopter. <laughs> so the question is, would any president have managed the rescue operation better? It's, it's hard to argue that. Mm. Um, president Obama, years later, would handle the attempt and ultimately successful uh, killing of bin Laden better because of the experience Jimmy Carter the, had the in 1980. Of, you know, you've said about Jimmy Carter that he was unable to connect with the American people. Well. The person who beat him badly uh, and who succeeded him, Ronald Reagan, clearly had the ability to communicate with the American people. But I remember the 1980 election. Democrats were giddy that he was running. How come they missed the fact that he was connecting with the American people? Um, there are transcendent political figures in our history. They, they changed the terms of debate. They, they, Ronald Reagan was one such uh, character, it's, uh, one such figure in American history. And, Honestly, it's hard to know at the time, <laughs> but uh, those who remember that era <clears throat> will know that, the, that the, the middle point in our politics on the spectrum shifted right. Ronald Reagan just changed the way we thought about politics. I think that Reagan is best understood as the response, the psychological response many Americans had after the defeats in Vietnam and Watergate and the awful economic experience of the 1970s. <laughs> Ronald Reagan said, let's be optimistic. Our best days are ahead of us, and Americans needed to hear that at the time. Was it just the ability to communicate, or did he actually revive the economy, as a lot of people give him credit for, and end the Cold War? Didn't he do those well, things? Well, the, uh, the biography, the American Experience biography that, that folks will watch, um, argues, and historians agree, that Ronald Reagan was much more ideological in his rhetoric than in his actions. He was quite pragmatic as president. Uh, he raised taxes. He never called it that. He called it revenue enhancements, but he raised taxes, and he shifted his view of the Soviet Union. In the beginning, in his first term, he calls the Soviet Union um, the, the evil empire and the sort of the center of evil in the world. By the end of his second term, he not only thinks he can work with Gorbachev, but he is signing agreements with Gorbachev that are shaping the nature, changing the nature of the Cold War and ending it. So do you, so you give him credit for being at least one of the key players? One of the, one of the things that you look for, I believe, in a president is the ability to learn from data. 
you don't know what it's like to be president until you're president. That's a cliche, but you know some cliches are cliches because they're real. <laughs> George H.W. Bush, you wrote a biography of him, and, and you consider him one, one of your favorite presidents. Why? Uh, uh, the, 1980, the 1988 campaign was ugly and terrible. Once in office, George H.W. Bush's combination of prudence and deep foreign policy understanding was exactly what the American people in the world needed at that moment. Mm -hmm. You needed a president who would not take a victory lap as uh, Gorbachev's empire was dissolving. You needed a president who could hold Gorbachev's hand and lead him into a new world where Russia and the United States could work, or the Soviet so Union. So he didn't make there. a big deal out of the fall of the Soviet Union because he wanted to protect Gorbachev. Yes, he, he, wanted, he felt that Gorbachev was our best hope at a post-Cold War world. And the best evidence of that was the way in which he worked with Gorbachev to come, again, come out against Saddam Hussein. Imagine a former Soviet ally, Saddam Hussein, would be attacked by the Soviet Union politically. And that happens because, because uh, President Bush convinced Gorbachev that the world needed to constrain dictators who wanted to change borders through force. Some of the other accomplishments of George H.W. He, he, he made a terrible mistake in 1988. He said, read my lips, no new taxes. And he did that because conservatives didn't trust him. In office, he sees the data, and he realizes he has to raise taxes for the sake of the U.S. economy. The, the budget deficit that Ronald Reagan left him with was hurting us by pushing up interest rates. So he breaks his promise for the sake of the American people. He thought he had a bipartisan deal. But what happens is that his own Republicans turn against him. Newt Gingrich. And so he has to negotiate just with Democrats. He so does he it agrees to... And he agrees to do it, but he never, ever escapes the political price. So he, he agreed to do it, and you actually credit him with reviving him and, and Bill Clinton with, with reviving the economy, not Ronald Reagan. Well, the, Ronald Reagan's supply-side economics didn't work. George Bush and mm. Bill Clinton... Uh, both are responsible for the expansion of the 1990s. So, in the last 30 seconds that we have, what should voters be looking for, uh, looking at with the candidates as the presidential election uh, gets underway? Being president, it's an enormously difficult job. It is, in fact, the most difficult job in the world because you are, at the, you are in charge of the biggest economy, uh, the biggest growing economy, and you are in charge of the world's most powerful military. The American president, because of our Constitution, is head of state, head of government, and uh, head of state and government, and also commander-in-chief. Those three jobs generally are not in the same person in democracy, but they are in ours. Your decision about who's the president is a decision about who has the judgment, the ability to, to do that job. Who can learn in office? Who can respond? Who is flexible, intellectually flexible enough and, and uh, curious enough to respond to the world as it is, not the world as they think it should be. All right. Well, Tim, thank you so much. Uh, we'll invite you back as the uh, presidential election does continue. Thank you, Ralph. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Metro Focus. Take our award-winning program wherever you go with Metro Focus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play Metro Focus, the podcast. Also available at WLIW.org slash radio and on the NPR One app.